Now, does higher pay mean greater productivity? That's the central question I'll be asking in this Core Insights podcast for Warwick Business School. Well, at least one business tycoon, the American industrialist Henry Ford, seemed to suggest that it did, that paying his workforce more got more out of them, at least on his Model T motorcar production line in the early 1900s. But was he typical, and does his example hold good today? I'm Trevor Barnes, and to answer these questions, I'm joined by Andrea Izzoni, Professor of Behavioural Science here at Warwick Business School. Well, Professor Izzoni, let's start with Henry Ford himself. How did he change the whole nature of production and productivity? As you said, um, it was um, uh, out of the times because it, it was uh, given a rather different interpretation of how you should pay your people. And also for economists, uh, I am, I've been trained as an economist, it's a, it's a very interesting case because we know that you should pay your worker the marginal value of the marginal product. So he was paying above the reservation wage, which basically means paying more than what the worker is doing. And that sounded like a, a strange idea. On the other hand, economists think, okay, you want to get more out of people, you should pay them more. But in that case, just because the value of what they produce will increase. We are interested in this because it gives us insights on the motivations behind this and how the, both parties to this transaction may, may respond. Well, we'll look at that in a moment. But first of all, it worked for Henry Ford. He did rather well out of it. Is it an example we can follow today? Ah, so many things have changed. And uh, there are sectors in which you can see that happening even today. And so there are cutting-edge industries where innovation is the core, where you see something like that happening, maybe not in terms of pay necessarily, but in terms of working conditions. So you can imagine wanting someone to come up with a new idea, with an innovation. And you can say, well, we're going to pay you a bonus if you achieve that. But there is research in behavioral economics which suggests may, maybe uh, that's uh, putting a lot of pressure on, on the em- employee. And, and this is uh, taking up mental resources they cannot concentrate fully on, on their work. On the other hand, there are other ways of, of doing that, which is we'll give you working conditions such as, for example, money, the, the money issue is off the table. So you're paying enough. Uh, that you don't have to worry about money. And we also give you working conditions that value other things you as a creative person may value, like autonomy. And there are examples of, for example, companies like, uh, I think it was a software developer uh, company in Australia, Atlassian, saying for these two days in a month, you can work on whatever you want. And uh, you just choose the person you want to work with and... And then at the end of this, you may present the results in a party uh, we're having here at the company. And they found that by giving this freedom to their workers, they came up with all sorts of solutions for soft, uh, software bugs or n- ideas for new software products and so on. And, and I, I'm, I'm trying to argue that this is a similar sort of idea in a sense, that the employer is giving the employee something they want and in return, uh, they are, the employees are responding with greater productivity and a greater contribution to the uh, firm. 
But under normal circumstances, wouldn't it be fair to say, well, you know, there are always going to be lazy people, there are always going to be unscrupulous people, but given that everyone is fair-minded and honest, that simple equation of just giving them more will actually get more out of them. Uh, this is a, a, a very difficult question to answer as a general pr- principle, as a general rule, I would say. I would say many people are uh, fair-minded, so they care about being treated well and and they tend to respond to that, but there are always people who, who try to do as little as possible. So I think as a manager you have to be aware aware of this. And I think that their, the interpersonal connections will also uh, be important in managing this particular situation. So it's, it's unfortunately, wh- whenever you're dealing with something that is behavioral, so you're looking at the behavior of people, it's not a mechanistic equation that works everywhere, every time, in every circumstance. Sometimes even s- small details of the situation may matter. Now, is it something in human psychology that means that equation doesn't work? Or is it a feature of today's complex industrial and market economy? Some evolutionary psychologists probably would say that is the former. Uh, my intuition tells me there is more the interaction of the two. And, and may, maybe my evolutionary psychologist colleagues would, would probably start to agree with the idea that our psychology has evolved in a certain context and then uh, our world today especially is, is changing so rapidly that what we've adapted to may not be necessarily good for uh, the situation we're facing now. So I think it's more complex than that. It's more like a, an interaction of the two. Well, I mean, this may be a bit of a low blow, but if paying more than the market rate's no guarantee of increased productivity, is that something that the trade unions have grasped? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I suppose for the trade unions, uh, it, it is key that the members are paid what they regard as a first salary. And I think the whole movement came and uh, was um, born at a time where things were not working like that. So if from the kind of beginning of the Industrial Revolution, employers were as sort of modern as Henry Ford was at his, at his times, probably trade unions would not have developed. I, I think trade unions have a, have a great role to play in society in terms of the balance checks. But we we know that whenever you push it too far, then there may be adverse circumstances. So if trade unions becomes too intransigent, then you can get to a point where an industry is close to collapse. And we've seen, we've seen examples of that in this country with the um, automotive industry um, back in the 80s, I think, or, or early 90s. So I, I think I think there's to be a balance there. And do you think it's possible to quantify workers' motivation and employers' expectation? It depends, though, on on what you mean by quantify. So, quantifying motivation is, by its its nature, a, a difficult thing because uh, it cannot be measured with a, an external instrument. You can just like a thermometer, you can say, oh, what's your motivation now? You can't, you can't do that. You, you're bound to do it uh, via some measures that kind of involve the participation of, of the respondent. So you can ask questions, you can have questionnaires and so on. And that always leaves room for the, the responder to pretend something different than, and than what's, what's real. So it become, becomes a, a bit of a strategic, strategic situation in which they try to respond, given 
what they think is the motivation of the person who's asking the question and what they will do with the answers. Because you do quote the mathematical discipline of game theory uh, as a way of learning about motivation. First of all, what is game theory in brief and how can it help in practice? Well, I could say in simple terms, uh, game theory uh, can be seen as a set of mathematical tools, economists in particular, used to analyse situations in which there is an interaction between agents. And if you think about sort of some parts of economics being interested in individual behaviour, in, in their case, see, say for example me going shopping uh, for groceries, what I buy is what I eat and, and the consequences of those uh, choices fall on me. But when I'm interacting with someone and we, uh, the outcome for us depends on how we both behave, then we are in a strategic situation. And that's where game theory comes into play. So the interaction between trade unions and employers you were talking about earlier can be modelled by game theory. Or the interaction between a single employer and the uh, uh, employees can also be modelled using instruments of, of that kind. And, of course, human motivations are very wide-ranging, human psychology is complex, and uh, the, the games we study in game theory are much simpler. So we need to uh, boil it down to very simple scenarios. And, in fact, in many of our um, pieces, we start study very stylized scenarios, which we believe, have, however, capture essential elements of the reality we want to model. Well, I'm going to ask you to simplify something else and unpack something else now. When you say that many employment relationships can be described in terms of something known as the trust game, what do you mean? Well, the trust game is a very simple uh, stylized model of an interaction that we study both theoretically and also experimentally by asking people to make choices in very simple incentivized tasks. So there is a uh, a player or a first mover who makes a choice first, which may result in a situation in which both the first mover and the second mover have a higher payoff, we say, so they earn more money, for example, than if the first mover takes another course of action. But that's contingent on what the second mover does. So the second mover can decide whether what happens next produces benefit for both parties or only benefits the second mover himself. And so this is, this is a very simple situation, but we can think about the first mover being Henry Ford, paying uh, their workers more than the minimum wage, and the second movers being the workers, deciding whether to work harder and make sure that um, they are benefiting, but Henry Ford is also benefiting, or just to uh, do the bare minimum and take the benefit without benefiting back. So this this is a very simple situation. It's simple because uh, in the stylized versions we studied, there are just two people, two players interacting, and there's also a very limited set of things that uh, people can do. But I think it's capturing some interesting aspects of these employment relationships when there's um, synchronous moves uh, between the parties and one has to respond to the other making the first move. Now, you also bring into your analysis the notion of kindness. Um, what does that mean in practice in terms of a company's operation? I mean, are they aware of the notion of kindness in their equation? So think about Henry Ford again. 
and 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 think about uh, how you can interpret. So, as game theorists, we are in, in, uh, interested in understanding um, things that we observe through the lenses of, of our modeling. So, think about the Henry Ford example once more. You can think, okay, how can we make sense of what's happening? Because in in a standard analysis, you wouldn't expect that happening. So. Henry Ford would pay the minimum and the workers would uh, respond with minimum effort. Uh, whereas we are seeing that he's paying more and they're responding with more effort. One possible explanation uses the idea of reciprocal kindness. So Henry Ford has been kind to the workers and the workers are being kind in return. So the idea of reciprocal kindness is, in essence, the fact that uh, people have an inclination to respond with kindness to people of being kind to them and a kind of symmetric inclination to respond with un unkindness to people who have been unkind to them. And this has been modeled as kind of the first contribution in psychological game theory um, that we um, were addressing in, in our research. Now, the problem is with this idea that in a world in which um, you can expect the trust and trustworthiness equilibrium, there's no room for kindness uh, from the first mover, and therefore that cannot elicit un uh, kindness in response. The problem there is that this explanation cannot, cannot explain trust and trustworthiness. And that's exactly what we call in our research the paradox of trust. So while trust seems to be the paradigm case of reciprocity, because there's uh, this kind of a relationship of mutual uh, trust and trustworthiness between the parties, you cannot explain it in terms of this reciprocal kindness idea. So does that mean, quite simply, there's no place for kindness in business? Uh, no, what we, what we uh, tend to think of is that these equilibria, which we see, like in the case of Henry Ford, are more the effect of what we call reciprocal cooperation. So it's another way of looking at, um, at the situation, but one in which there isn't a gratuitous move from the first person that is then uh, reciprocated by the other, but actually the two parties intend together to get to a mutually beneficial outcome. So in, in the case of Henry Ford, it's like, uh, oh, you guys are paid more as, as workers, and, and I have a more productive factory which produces more, more uh, profit. In, in the reciprocal kindness world, the idea that uh, I want to profit from this undermines the very notion that uh, is the basis for the, that uh, situation. In, in reciprocal cooperation, it's exactly the intention that we both benefit that is driving the deal. And there's no contradiction in that, so that can survive as an equilibrium. So in a sense, uh, what we want to argue is, is that Yes, we, we can see these mutually beneficial outcomes at play, but they are more likely the result of reciprocal cooperation rather than reciprocal kindness. And because we are interested in understanding uh, the motivation behind behavior, then that's helpful for us because we know what we want to build in our, in our models. But I think you mentioned that there is a paradox here, that if that trust isn't seen as, perceived as an act of kindness, then it won't be responded to with kindness itself. For example, if, if increased 
pay is seen by the workforce as being a management strategy just to increase their profits, they'll see through it and they won't work harder. Exactly. So that, that, is, that is why we tend to prefer the reciprocal cooperation interpretation over the reciprocal kindness. This is not to say that some, in some situations workers may perceive higher pay as a way of inducing more effort and then they will say, well, wait a minute, this is not a kind move, it's a self-interested move, why should we respond? That's how a person motivated by reciprocal kindness would uh, respond. And that's why the story is good at explaining when things don't work. But when things work, it fails. Because the moment there is a profit from the first mover, the kindness drops from the equation. And therefore, we cannot see the second mover's uh, response as a reciprocation of kindness. There's no such a problem if you think about it in terms of reciprocal cooperation. Because both parties have this intention of achieving something that is better for both. The only difference is that one moves first. But by moving first, what they're doing is simply doing their part in the joint course of action which brings about mutual benefit. So in this case, there's no contradiction. So you don't see this paradox. And therefore, in a sense, try to think about it like this. So when, 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 when it works, it's, it's because people are behaving under the motivation of reciprocal cooperation. So they want to achieve something that is better for both. If they have this more confrontational attitude of rewarding and punishing each other for kindness and unkindness, then it fails. So in cases in which it doesn't work, it may be that the motivations behind people's actions are more in line with reciprocal kindness. Now, you touched on this a little earlier, but if we can just drill down a bit, I mean, where does that leave the bonus culture, the banker's bonus, where you're not giving someone a higher rate of pay, but you are rewarding them with a very large cash sum at, at one particular point? Is that effective? Yeah, well, to what extent this fits within these two pictures is also in, in terms of the temporal succession of, of the moves. So in a sense, I suppose bankers, after a while, gets, get to expect higher bonuses. And, and, and I think there was also some discontent amongst the public that uh, those bonuses seem to happen regardless, really, of, of, the effective, uh, of the effective performance, just because people were a, a, in, a, in a certain position. I'm not sure whether you would interpret that as a reciprocal kindness, but I, I'm pretty sure it would not fit within the framework of, of reciprocal cooperation the way we in, intended, um, just, just because it's not necessarily the case that the joint actions are producing mutual benefit if it's not clear what the relationship is between the actions that led uh, to the particular outcome. So what are the lessons that employers can learn from your psychological discipline? Well, if I'm thinking more broadly than this specific piece of, of, of research that we have done, I think from, um, from behavioural economics we have now a range of findings which highlight some... Uh, the standard economists would regard as anomalies in the ways monetary incentives work. And um, I've highlighted some examples earlier with the innovation bonus, which may undermine the creativity of people. 
um, and that's known in the literature as choking um, effect. So there are some things, some things we've we've um, known. So paying too little for things that people would uh, would do out of intrinsic motivation may not be a good idea because then you change the nature uh, of the task. So if you're paying for things of that kind, you need to uh, make sure the money is sufficient that people don't have to worry about getting to the end of the month, uh, in a sense. And, and you need to also make sure that there are some other parts of the package. It's, it's not just about money. It's also about valuing autonomy. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking more about like creative jobs um, because in, in standardized, repetitive, mechanical activities, money seems to, to work uh, pretty well. But uh, because today's societies are much more focused on uh, change and innovation, I think you need to make sure you preserve the, aut- the autonomy and you don't make it all about money. Tell me, I know that you actually research managers, uh, business people, leaders and so forth to understand the mechanisms that they operate by. But do they reciprocally phone you up and say, how can we make our operation more successful by tapping into some of the insights of a behavioural psychologist? Well, they, they don't phone me up personally because probably um, if they look at one of my research papers, it's, it's probably too abstract. But it is true that uh, behavioural science in general, more broadly, it's making its way in, into applications that were probably unconceivable 10 or 20 years ago. At Warwick Business School, we are probably more interested in connections with the public sector and regulators in terms of using so-called behavioural insights to design better policies. And in, in those cases, it's not so much about managerial practices. It's probably more about helping the most vulnerable consumers navigate the complex world of decision-making, which they tend to face in some context. Think, for example, about financial decisions or choices about pensions, things that people tend naturally not to focus too much or not to think about too often, which may scare them because they feel they don't have a particular knowledge. So the behavioral science that is applied in this context is mostly trying to simplify the decision scenario in a way that even people who are not investing the amount of um, cognitive resources that would be required to make the, you know, the optimal decision may be led to satisfactory decisions. So that's, that's where the, the effects of our research tend to be seen. And do you, do you think the HR departments are reading psychological tomes in order to uh, sort of streamline their workplace and, and, and keep their, their um, workforce happy? In my experience, that's, that's sometimes hindered by the scale of the HR department. So the, the larger it becomes, the more codified the practices become, the less you can you can feel the psychological aspects of the employer-employee relationship. And therefore, you may lose track of, of where the, the channels through which uh, some of the effects we were discussing could operate. So, so I would say it would be good to have a behavioral insight specialist in, in some HR departments 
to use some of the ideas that are now so currently applied in public policy to simplify procedures within companies. And, and in that case, yes, there would be room for, uh, for improvement. So to end where we began, I mean, if things have changed since Henry Ford's day, are things likely to t- change again? I mean, will people grow used to this model and, and then, then outgrow it? It's hard to predict exactly what will happen, but things are changing at uh, faster pace. So it's, it's not inconceivable that uh, things that work today will not work sometime, sometime in the future. The good thing is that uh, businesses work in an environment in which there is a natural selection. So things that don't work tend to be abandoned. So uh, even if we, no- we cannot predict exactly where things will go 5, 10 years, 20 years from now, I think we can rely on the robustness of the market environment to select uh, the things that will tend to survive. All of which I'm sure will keep you and the Behavioural Psychology Department in business for some time to come. Professor Izoni, thank you. And you can read more about behavioural science on the Warwick Business School website, along with articles on healthcare management, finance, strategy, leadership, entrepreneurship and innovation. I'm Trevor Barnes and this has been a Core Insights podcast for Warwick Business School.